Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The, uh, it ended up in like loads of newspapers and shit. <laughs> I don't know how it was newspaper worthy, honestly. Like, I got rinsed fucking harder on Saturday night when I was out with my mates. It's Monday, which means it's time for the Front Free Weekend Review Podcast. Your Front Free this week is me, Adam Boltwood, the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Hello. And Nico Morales is here as well. Hey, how are you doing? Very well. Just back from uh, your neck of the woods, Nico. Uh, Orlando, Florida. My yeah. neck of the woods. You had a, a tiring time. Very tiring. Very very busy time. We didn't actually get to, to meet up out there. I was doing all the theme parks and stuff. Halloween Horror Nights, you know. All sorts going on. Uh, very exciting. Do you, get, do you go to the theme parks yourself out there? Or is it just like, oh, you're there, so you didn't bother? I go when there's something new. So obviously you mentioned when we were talking about it pre-record the the Avatar thing. I'll probably go and check that out. And then everybody goes to the Halloween Horror Nights. It's a nice little thing They're to do pretty good, once actually. a year. The one complaint is yeah, it's all great. It's great fun going to the theme parks. Like the Halloween Horror Nights is really cool as well. The sort of like it's like these horror theme mazes. There's one for The Shining. There's one for the Saw movies where you feel like you're sort of in the movies, Ooh, getting no, scared, people jumping out around all this sort of stuff. Very very good fun, but. I'd say each of those experiences is about five minutes, maybe max, and you're queuing for an hour, maybe an hour and a half for some of these things. So it feels like it just builds the tension. Just builds. T- you're like, oh yeah. my god, an hour and a half. You're like, God, am I gonna, you know, have to jump into a pit of needles or, you know, what for me? Soak. That's one way of putting it. Um, we probably should talk about football though. Um, very exciting weekend in the Premier League. We're going to be discussing all the big talking points this weekend in part one, including Manchester City on fire, Chelsea struggles, Arsenal losing once again at Watford. Uh, part two, we'll talk Stephen Housen uh, to talk Manchester United's goal destroyer Liverpool with Mourinho's approach once again dividing opinion before finally in part three, we'll talk some of the action from around Europe with a focus on Serie A which is shaping up very nicely indeed after eight matches. Let's jump straight into the Premier League action then, Nico. We've got to start with Manchester City. 7-2 victory over Stoke City at home. Uh, Now the first English top flight team to score 29 goals in their first eight league games of the season since Everton in 1894. So I'm told by Opta. Uh, This was their best performance yet under Pep Guardiola, was it not? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was great. And I think it's difficult to specifically point out what Manchester City did so well um, in order to win this game by such a significant margin. But I think if you look at, for me, the thing that I thought about was like, this is a perfect juxtaposition of how differently managers can use players. I think if you look at uh, the performance of someone like Raheem Sterling, where if you look at the second goal, where uh, I think Kevin De Bruyne plays that great ball and then Leroy Sané squares it to him and he puts it in the back of the net, he, his movement off the ball dragged Eric Peters way far back and that played everyone off sides. And that's a common theme with the mo- the majority of the goals. It's beautiful passing, but it's also this fantastic and aggressive positional movement that we we uh, consistently uh, sort of associate with Guardiola that makes all of these things possible. And when Raheem Sterling is off the ball and he's doing those things and we're using his intelligence and his movement off the ball to do all of these things, he's a fantastic player. And then you go and see him play for England and he's used in, in a completely different role, in a completely different way. And he's he's a different player, but it's the same guy. It's just the, the usage of, of the player is completely different from manager to manager. So, you know, it, I think it was probably the best performance that we've seen out of the city side so far. 
Um, and it's difficult to pick out anything that they did wrong. And I think Stoke, they would just weren't prepared. They Everything, for me, the way I look at football is that, um, you know, managers go in with the game plan with trying to do certain things and, and provoke certain actions, and then they react to those sort of reactions. And everything that Manchester City did to try and pull Stoke farther apart, mess with their spacing, provoke the action, the pressing actions of certain players, and then play through that was, you know, full full throttle throughout the entire match and I just think he didn't really have any sort of game plan to to try to negate that there was tons tons of space to be exploited there wasn't really a game plan uh from Stoke to to negate anything that Manchester City were doing and and they won heavily obviously Kevin De Bruyne the man receiving the plaudits Lawrence uh he's pretty good at football isn't he I mean 32 league assists I think since he's joined City the most in the Premier League in that time it's an interesting one with uh, Kevin De Bruyne because everyone seems to be talking about him as if he came out of nowhere um, <clears throat> or sort of suddenly became a good player. I think he's been an excellent player for a very long time. I think it shows a lot more about the coaching that Pep Guardiola has given him, uh, allowing him to read the game in a certain way. It's, it's also, let's face it, he's playing in a fantastic side where he can pick out those sort of passes. Um, I imagine that there's a lot of revision in there for him. There's a lot of looking at the kind of pass he needs to pick. I think, which goal was it where he made a diagonal pass through the defence and it went sort of through mm. both banks of players? That was Sané's goal, was it? Yeah, that yeah, was Sané's goal, It was yeah. reminiscent of the kind of passes that you'd see at Barcelona. Um, and so it, it, there's a very clear coaching strategy there, which I think is getting the best out of him. I think it makes him good. Um, I think it would be interesting to see how he does on the international stage um, with different players, different coaches, maybe not able to pick out the same sort of passes in a different kind of system. Uh, and I think that's maybe the where players begin to make the difference, you know, on a sort of Ballon d'Or level, is they have to play well on an international level. Mm. Um, so I think that's probably the next stage for him is, you know, proving it with the likes of Belgium. But he's fantastic and doing incredibly for Man City. And at the same time, I think uh, the movement of the players that he's playing with, it also make him look incredible. This is the thing, Nico, I think what Lawrence is speaking to there is the fact that uh, he's potentially evolved under Guardiola De Bruyne, a player we've always talked about as one of the best in the Premier League, but now the best in the Premier League, an early contender potentially for the Player of the Season award. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, uh, I looked at it as sort of a juxtaposition with uh, Paul Pogba, and not maybe not necessarily a Paul, uh, juxtaposition, but I think the the work that both Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola are doing with these players that they've they've deemed are sort of going to be the central parts of their system. Mourinho with Pogba and uh, De Bruyne with uh, Pep Guardiola is that they've taken those players and taken everything that they can do well. Kevin De Bruyne's passing, his final ball, his movement off the ball, Paul Pogba's press resistance and, and the passing ability that he's able to bring to a team. And they've introduced and made them do things that they're uncomfortable with and thus made them more complete players. So last season, uh, a lot of people were complaining that maybe maybe Kevin De Bruyne's best position isn't a little deeper uh, down the pitch, but he's making him into more of a central midfielder as opposed to an inside forward, which a lot of people still think is his best position. And I think in terms of goals and assists, you probably see a little bit more out of Kevin De Bruyne, but he's as influential, if not more, to his team as a regular central midfielder. And the same sort of goes for Paul Pogba. You know, he was an absolute liability at Juventus with his uh, defensive contributions, but Jose Mourinho has made him into a more complete central midfielder by making him do things that he's uncomfortable with, putting him in positions that are uh, risky and require him to to be a more complete player. And that's coaching at the very best. And that's why the, the those two coaches are consistently uh, at the best clubs and, and doing the very best in the game is because they're very good coaches. City now sets face Napoli at home on Tuesday night in the Champions League. Uh, Napoli side, who we will touch on a little bit later, they're now top of Serie A with a 100% record. Uh, it's a fascinating game in store, isn't it, Nico? Yeah, I'm actually doing something for the ringer, a little preview for the Manchester City uh, Napoli game. So go and check that out. It will be up before the the city game, the ringer.com. But yeah, Napoli have been amazing. And I think that last year, this is last year, Monaco versus Manchester City was the appetizer. The sides weren't completely put together. The they were great, but but there was a lot of flaws within those systems. Napoli and Manchester City, they're very alike. I think City have scored 29 goals across uh, eight Premier League games and uh 
Napoli have scored 26 across eight Serie A games. And they've both been dynamic. They've both been amazing across all parts of the pitch. They play in very similar ways. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be probably the, the one of the best games of the season uh, to watch these two sides who are so attacking, so incredible both on and off the ball to go at each other in in a champions league match that's what we want right that's what we want out of the champions league so we want both teams on fire manchester city as you said there 29 goals in their first eight league games uh many calling for them to be handed the title already it's seemingly already in pep guardiola's grasp uh, especially with other teams around them dropping points other contenders uh one of which of course the reigning champions themselves chelsea uh disappointing shock 2-1 defeat at Crystal Palace on the weekend. Uh, Crystal Palace not only winning their first game of the season, scoring their first goal of the season as well. Uh, Chelsea, though, Lawrence, we'll talk about them first. Are they now out of the title race after three defeats already this season, as Antonio Conte seemed to suggest himself after the game? I said it was interesting to see Conte's uh, take on it after the game. I think they're nine points off the top now after the weekend. Um, and that... I think is partly a motivational side. I mean, he he may believe they're out of the title race because that could be true, but it, they have the same number of points as they had uh, at this point in the season as they did last season. And then they went on that, that amazing run. Um, and it was after that run that I think a lot of people retrospectively said, oh, it's the and the motivational tactics, the, um, the way that he galvanizes the team, brings everyone together. Um, and so I, I would say at this point, it's probably a tactic to uh, bring the players together rather than uh, taking them out of the title race. It also makes for good headlines, which take away from um, the pressure and losing to a side who had clearly been drilled very well during the international break. It had some time to work on the systems that they needed to. We said this when Roy Hodgson came in, he's excellent at drilling people, excellent at getting the, the, the things that they need to do on a very basic level out of the players. And I think it also makes it very difficult for a coach like uh, Conte maybe to prepare for a game when, you know, you'll know roughly what someone like Roy Hodgson is going to do, but you're not going to have very much tape to assess. It's going to be that sort of thing. And you'd hope then that your centre-backs and the system can deal with it. Like for a lot of the time, uh, Chelsea have been able to do with three at the back, uh, especially considering they only really played one up front. Well, actually they played two up front. They played Townsend and Zaha when we looked at the average formations on the show on the weekend, they played really more of a 4-4-2 rather than a 4-5-1, but Zaha led the line. Um, and so uh, I don't think it's as shocking as people say it is. Um, I think a lot of people just juxtapose the fact that Crystal Palace looked bad pre-international break, looked awful pre-international break, compared with the way that they look now. Um, and also catching Chelsea on the hop. I don't think they'll be this bad in future games. And I think you'd expect very few of those games to be under under Conte's watch. I, asking a question of you guys, though, do you think that maybe the, a huge problem is Conte needs his players to die for him or sort of be very committed to the system? And now it feels like he's going to leave or maybe some of the players feel like he's going to leave at some point uh, soon. It makes it difficult for him to instill that same mentality on a squad. There is that uncertainty isn't there, Nico? There does seem to be those question marks over Conte's future. He was clearly unhappy with the uh, the transfer business over the summer. I mean, uh, of course, injuries played a part in this defeat uh, with Alvaro Morata missing for Chelsea, but they do seem to be facing a lot of issues, don't they, right now? Yeah, and I think in that sense, to, to maybe answer Lawrence's question, I think... Um, you know, a lot of this for me is is sort of a similarity between Antonio Conte and Jose Mourinho in the sense that Mourinho, we saw with Liverpool against United, he's not very comfortable doing risky things or I don't even think some of the things that we would deem risky, you know, he wouldn't even consider um, without, you know, the the starting the, the, the 11 players that he deems fit to, to enact his game plan. And I think that the similarity here for Conte is that, you know, he has a game plan. He has a tactical setup and an idea of what he wants to do with a, a certain 11 players. When one of those players or one of those key players is taken out of it, then the system starts to unravel a little bit. And you now that they have two players that are that are taken out of that of that system in Angulo Kante and uh and Alvaro Alvaro Morata then you know the the system looks almost completely broken 
Bakioko was really bad in this game. I think the goal sort of covered up a bad performance. He was really bad at, uh, as a ball sort of a progressing midfielder. And then Mishibashuai, I understand he's a good player, but I think under Conte, it doesn't really fit because if you look at the the runs that Morata's making and the the type of connection that he has with the people who are giving him service, whether that be the, one of the members of the back three or or one of the midfielders, it's completely different to how Mishibashuai plays. He seems almost completely disconnected with the side as a whole. And it's it's no wonder that they didn't have much enjoyment in front of goal and to me this game was more about Chelsea being bad and not necessarily having a secondary game plan as opposed to Crystal Palace being very good at the same time I think they took their opportunities and they did very well but it's worrying to see that you know in the second season where they're going to compete be competing across more competitions in more games especially as this winter period encroaches and and you have more important games that he home that he really only has one setup that he's comfortable with and and can enact the the game plan that he wants to i also think they created a lot more chances i mean it wasn't just you know they did they didn't put away the chances they did create you know three two here you know um or, or different i mean it, it also makes great sense that post-international break players who have been exceptionally motivated had the time to work on things, come back and put in a great performance against the likes of Chelsea. Because I think a lot of people, obviously, including me, including other people, assume that they lose all three games against uh, United, City and Chelsea. Well, and this is the via the expected goals. I mean, Crystal Palace actually pretty comprehensively uh, outplayed in terms of the the goal-scoring chances that they created. Chelsea barely created uh, much at all, and, and Palace were were almost deserving of two goals um, by the ratings. So, you know, it, it's, it was, a, like I said, I think it was Chelsea being really bad that, that was the story of this match. I mean, you seem to be uh, reluctant to give Palace too much credit there, Nico, but Lawrence, do you think this is the start of a revival for Crystal Palace? Is this the start of the fight back, as Wilfried Zahar seemed to suggest, after the game, they are still bottom of the table, but as I mentioned, they're off the mark now with goals, with points. I think uh, there are uh, there are a lot of times where uh, it, it, after after a victory, it's obviously quite easy to talk well about a team. This showed a lot of the elements that they will need to stay up, but I still think that there are players who are um, subject to having good games and bad games, blowing hot and cold. Zaha looked great against, uh, had some great moves against the back line of Chelsea early on, worried them. Uh, I don't think they're going to come up against that every week. And I think that's where Roy and his boys are going to suffer um, because they won't come up. Well, it's true. They won't come up against the same system. Um, And also they won't come up against teams out of form. What the, the real key is, will he be able to bring them together when they really need to battle because um, there were also a few very key silly mistakes in there, which maybe in other games had the had the ball gone a different direction, we'd see, you know, a, a two-two draw. Sacco uh, had a terrible sort of back heel situation, which was one reason that a lot of people were nervous around, about him at Liverpool. Um, and at Chelsea, did create some other chances or uh, more profit than they need to be. So, yeah, I, I think I'm I would be frustrated more as a Chelsea fan. Also. Uh, we will see what happens with Chelsea in terms of uh, being able to change a system. I think uh, he expected players to uh, step up better and maybe uh, not play in the same position. Fabregas, I don't think, had a fantastic game for Chelsea uh, because of his partner. And I think um, that will probably change in coming weeks when he finds a slightly different shape in the field. Let's talk about Arsenal then guys uh falling to a 2-1 defeat do we have Watford. to uh, we do have to um we should probably start it looks so good they it did. looked so good early on they got the goal they did uh but this ends that sort of resurgence they had after their poor start to the season um i think they they'd gone with three wins and, and a draw in the last four matches things were looking up for Arsenal Wenger but again it's that same old story i mean Arsenal Wenger came out after the game uh, potentially justified in taking issue with the soft penalty that led to Watford's equalizer Lawrence but once again potentially not the real reason they lost bullied by Watford in that second half uh, who, who fought back impressively and as Troy Deeney said after the game Arsenal they lacked cojones did they not you say balls as well 
He said cojones, and then he said ball. I think he said balls. It all means bollocks. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree. I also think he makes a good point as well, though. If the penalty hadn't been given, they'd have drawn one or, or maybe gone on to win the game. But I, I've said this about Liverpool. I'll say it about Arsenal as well. If you rely on those sorts of moments uh, to define whether your game is good or bad, then I think you're probably reaching at some point. Um, and, uh, you know, Watford are also a, a great team this season. They're worried Liverpool as well. I don't think, you know, people are talking about a, a, the end of the resurgence, like you just said. I still think that Arsenal looked capable of beating those teams. I don't think everyone's going to go out there and sort of body up against Arsenal because they don't have the ability to. That's going to mean the resurgence continues. Will we see them? It's whether we'll see them fade after this because, you know, it, it proved that they're not a completely different team. Mm. That's the difference, I think. I think a lot of people were talking about a change in identity in some way, a change in feeling, when actually it was more of a, I think the, the system was better drilled. Um, and maybe, again, it's sort of now to what Nico was talking about, this plan B idea that when someone like Troy Deeney comes on, if they can't get physical with him, how can they then limit him? You know, do you have to drop someone deeper? Do you have to put a couple of men on him so they get the second ball, those sorts of things. It doesn't seem like they have a plan for that. And I think that's the big issue, that is if you identify those issues, then Arsenal, again, are sort of in a, a bad place. They probably should have killed this game off, though, Nico, before uh, the penalty controversy, as it were. Um, they do seem to be lacking some cojones on the road this season. They haven't actually won away in the league yet so far in this campaign. There's a lot of things, for, uh, unfortunately for Arsenal fans and, and Arsenal, is that... I think there's just a lot of things tactically that you can do to expose different parts of this formation. Like I said in, in sort of the preview, the good thing about Watford this season and and what makes them, I think, a little bit defensively solid and, and, and good down sort of in the attacking sense is that they progress the ball really well up the sides of the field. And in this current Arsenal iteration of whatever they're doing in the midfield – when you when you're dragging the players that far out wide and and it sort of creates a difficult position uh, for you know in terms of understanding what the defensive players have to do, then players like Granit Xhaka and and the other midfielders can look really bad in these situations when in reality they're just being put in really bad positions because of the things that other sides are doing to them tactically. And I think that's the issue for Arsenal is that there are so many different sides. There's so many different methods that Arsene Wenger hasn't, doesn't account for, doesn't try to negate that can pull Arsenal apart. And there's just a lot of the times there's just too much of sort of an archaic demand uh, on one position to do so much. And yet we consistently maybe try to call out Granite Chaka, like, what is he doing? What is he doing here? She, you know, mm, I think there was a clip of like, they singled yeah, him out for like, that. The winner. The, it, there's only so much that a player can do when, like, there's this old cliche adage that all the pundits say, which is, you know, oh, well, that that midfielder's there so you can protect the back four. That's such a ridiculous concept for one player to get all the way across the field and protect the entirety of a back four. And that's yet still what Arsenal is doing. And with the side, like I said, that likes to progress, you know, have ball progression down the side, then it's pulling those players out and causing problems there. And then you can have sort of unmarked runs coming from midfield since there are so few midfielders and they, they are sort of in a, in a halfway house in terms of positioning, then it creates a really difficult situation for Arsenal. So I think that was the, the main issue here. And, yeah, like I said, I just I don't think Wenger's doing enough to to try to protect his team and make his players look good. I do think Martin Kieran also fed off the back of that point though quite well in saying, and that it kind of feeds into what Nico's saying, but also sort of is a maybe it's a, a slightly different solution to what Nico's saying. Is that there? I mean, there are clearly more defensive-minded players, and so the the old adage of "I will go and defend the back four or be the defense for that is, you know, for instance really depends on it. Makaleli back in the day, he was there to protect the back four, not the entirety of it, but the bits which you were able to run at. And I think uh, what was great about Chelsea and that team was they were able to read another side, make tactical changes to, again, reduce the risks. And they had players who could read the game. And it seems less now like there are many players in the Arsenal team who are able to read the game and adjust to work out what to do in the game. So that's what Last season, we were talking about the, the poor Liverpool game management. We were talking about Manchester United being conservative to be able to manage. Arsenal don't seem to be able to do that as a group of players. And they lack those players, which Wenger brought in, which were the Artetas, the Carzolas, um, maybe even someone like Alexis Sanchez, who's, set, who's told, 
go and do this job, but then within that reads where the space is going to be and continues to go back to that space. So, you know, there's not a Vieira in there. There's not, um, mm. you know, there's not a Thierry Henry who thinks I see a weakness. I'm going to pounce on that. And that seems to be a real issue for them because it doesn't show the maturity, which uh, maybe some other side show. Um, yeah, you know, a, a great example of that recently was Alvaro Morata going out and scoring. He scored two or three recently. He saw that there was a, de- a defensive backline like Stoke, which was completely open to be attacked in the same way as Pep saw the entire team and just kept running at them. Um, and it worked really well because he read the game very well and drifted out wide. And, it, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be anyone like that in the team who looks savvy or mm, sort of a ruthless um, thing. intelligent. Yeah, ruthless is a really good word. I think also I was listening to uh, the Bill Simmons podcast. He had Bob Costas on and they were sort of talking about the NBA um, and sort of the evolution of the NBA and talking about like, oh, you know, what would happen if, um, you know, the current Golden State or or LeBron's Cavaliers that won the championship a few years ago would go up against, you know, the Celtics uh, with Larry Bird and all those guys or or the Lakers with Magic and all that. And I, the, the point that they made that I think re- relates to this in some sense is that like, Bill Simmons said you kind of have to give those guys like an understanding of how the game is played now of how it's so much more efficient like you have to make a certain amount of threes that just was unheard of back in the day in the NBA and I think that sort of relates to what we're talking about now like even if Patrick Vieira were in the game today and Arsenal continued to line up the way that they're lining up now or the way that they'll end up then even the most basic teams like 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 Stoke and Watford and teams further down the table are doing more complex tactical things in addition to like the athleticism that has made the game what it is today that you have to have like a basic accounting for protecting certain players and protecting your defense so that these very basic elements of how you attack a team and how you score a goal aren't present where in the past like it was much easier to do that. There is that sense, uh, once again, you know, Arsene Wenger, uh, a man left behind, as you mentioned there, Nico, as you're speaking to with these managers who uh, perhaps show a greater uh, advancement in terms of the tactics, in terms of the way to play the game. Uh, Marco Silva potentially being one of those names. A lot of Arsenal fans I saw uh, would be delighted if he were the man to succeed Arsene Wenger at Arsenal uh, one day, potentially in the not too distant future. Um, what did you make of this performance for Watford, obviously uh, disappointing in the first half, came out, as we mentioned, battled back in that second half. They're now fourth uh, above Chelsea and Arsenal now. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Like I mentioned, the ball progression down the wings. He's getting the best out of his players. What I'm sort of a little hesitant to talk about in terms of Marco Silva is that what we've seen so far is a game plan that suits to uh, or is going to make the likes of a Watford and and players within that team overperform and obviously they're in fourth you know we're eight games into the season it's not the latest but it's still a great position to be in at this at this point in time Um, his philosophy and the things that he's doing is making those players overperform right now and and achieve greater things that they might not have been capable of under a different manager. The talk of him going to a bigger club and doing the same thing has to be sort of in tandem with an elevated philosophy. He can't do the same thing, the same things that he's doing now, uh, you know, at, at a different club because the circumstances are different, the context is different, the players are different. So, I, to to me, I don't know too much about Marco Silva's history as a manager. I I wasn't too familiar with his Olympiacos sides, but if he can continue to sort of evolve his philosophy, and maybe it will still main, uh, maintain a sense of of defensive uh, solidity and the things that he's known for, but he has to evolve that philosophy for better players and 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 a different context. But you know, he he's doing great for with Watford, and I think he deserves all the plaudits that he's getting because, like I said, he's overachieving. Tottenham. Let's talk about Tottenham briefly. Uh, 1-0 win over Bournemouth at home. A great weekend for Spurs, all told. All the teams around them uh, considered rivals for the top four dropping points, bar City and, as we just mentioned, Watford, of course. Uh, Harry Kane found score at home once again, though, uh, and the feeling that you know Spurs, once again, overall struggled to impose themselves at home against a team who sat back. Almost felt inevitable at one point that Bournemouth would, could nick a point uh, and would have via Jermaine Defoe if it wasn't for... Hugo Lloris uh, in the in the last closing stage of the game. Um, it is a win though at home, morale boosting, much needed. I think it's safe to say. Um, but Spurs now facing Real Madrid this week in the Champions League at the Santiago Bernabeu on Tuesday night. Nico, uh, Spurs were on fire away from home 
That's where we're that's where we're performing. This is going to be a, a some bread and win. butter. Yeah, this is going to be a bread routine and win for Spurs. Harry Kane's going to score a hat trick. It's going to be three wins out of three in the Champions League for Spurs, isn't it, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I think equally to to sort of Manchester City Napoli, I think this will be one of the better games to watch because Spurs can enact sort of a defensive uh, defensive approach to the game as they did against Dortmund. Undoubtedly, Real Madrid will try to come onto them and displace them and move them around. But given the the sort of positional solidity and everything that Mauricio Pochettino has coached in these players, as we saw against Dortmund, they're a very deadly counterattacking team. And if they can they can enact sort of a similar game plan, not that it will be exactly the same. Obviously, Dortmund and Real Madrid are two completely different animals, but I think being more defensively solid, using Huang Min Song and, and Harry Kane on the counterattack, and, and maybe the final ball from Christian Eriksen, it could be. I don't think you know people are billing this as you know seven one Real Madrid. It could be a, a win for for Spurs, especially considering Real Madrid's most recent form. So you know I, I wouldn't be all that surprised if Spurs got the win because I think they have it in them to do so. They have the players to do so, and they have the manager to do so. As well this weekend, uh, Everton rescued a point at Brighton, undeservedly so, potentially say. Brighton potentially worth all three points given their performance. Um, Ronald Koeman uh, potentially gave himself a stay of execution there. Uh, Southampton also managed to salvage a point themselves at home to Newcastle. Manolo Gabbiadini, the hero on his return for the Saints, scoring both of the goals. Uh, still a good result for Newcastle. Uh, perhaps the, the better news for them. The good news, as I'm sure most Newcastle fans would agree, is that the club is up for sale, Lawrence. Just before we started recording this afternoon, the club officially announced as much following reports suggesting Mike Ashley is looking for a buyer. The statement this afternoon saying that they wish to clarify the club's intentions with Newcastle United requiring a clear direction and a path to a bright and successful future. Hard to disagree that that bright future needs new ownership, Lawrence. Oh, yeah, definitely so. Um, and maybe not even in a sort of resentful way to uh, Mike Ashley, just basically they need more investment if they want to go to the next level. Um, it's we've see, I think we saw um, some investors in the ground very recently. We'll see whether those guys come to fruition. Apparently they're looking at Newcastle and Liverpool and a couple of other bodies in the Premier League. <clears throat> it shouldn't be too difficult to find a buyer for the club because actually they're a great team with a local... Uh, history and actually a lot of history in the Premier League anyway. Um, a massive stadium, which most people say is worthy um, of Champions League football, whatever worthy means. So yeah, I, I think it, it makes sense for them to sell up, especially considering the relationship that Ashley has with all the fans who don't really seem to like him at all. Mm, it's certainly been a divisive 10-year spell at the club. But yep. as Lawrence says there, Nico, uh, great manager there at the moment, huge club. Big following, big stadium as well. Uh, a buyer won't be hard to find, surely. Yeah, I think um, you know they're probably one of the the the, the clubs with the the most amount of you know following in, in England. Although they they've recently fallen fallen from grace and not have the had the best period. But I think they won't like you said they won't necessarily uh, struggle to to find a, a buyer because I think there is um, you know some element of a sleeping giant in terms of everything that you can do in terms of marketing with Newcastle because they have a huge support. They're one of the biggest clubs in the area and they're built to be a Premier League club. Their stadium is massive um, and sort of they they have the the support of the city behind them. So yeah, I don't think they'll struggle to, to find a buyer because there's a lot there. There's a lot of history there. Elsewhere this weekend, Swansea beat Huddersfield 2-0 at home. Tammy Abraham uh, perhaps showing Chelsea what they are missing up front, growing a brace for the Swans. Uh, finally, Burnley also continuing their impressive start to the season, rescuing a draw themselves at Turf Moor against West Ham, who had a Andy Carroll sent off in the 27th minute. Um, I don't know if you saw this one, Lawrence. seemed to be two pretty inexplicable fouls. I think it was in the space of 90 seconds, a minute and a half. That managed yeah, back-to-back, to to back, it was very weird. It was very, very weird. Um, Slavin Bilic coming out rightfully after the game and sort of criticising him for essentially a stupid moment. Yeah, it was just silly. Um, and, I mean, he said he was playing his dream team before the game. Um, it, it again feels like another time where West Ham just work out a way to screw themselves. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're good. Uh, however, yeah, they, you know, they, they held on until pretty late on. So, um, mm. you know, 
it could it could have been worse for them, I think, especially considering um, the the two sides have very different perceptions in the league. Burnley being the world drill team, the West Ham being the side who have creativity but don't seem particularly well um, set up. West Ham, um, I, I still think are in real trouble with uh, Slavin Village in the long term. Uh, but again, it's one of those short-term things where you know if they can't find, again if they can't find someone who's better then what are they going to do? And I think that's a huge problem for West Ham. They can't seem to find someone who's better. One time they were making noises like they wanted to get rid of him and were sort of uh, trying to find someone else, but no one really seemed like they were ready to come forward and take charge. So I, I think that's why they've sort of found themselves stuck with Slavon. Right then, part two. We've done a match of the day here. We've put it last in our Premier League talking points. It's Liverpool nil, Manchester United nil. Let's discuss it from a Manchester United point of view first off with Stephen. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. House. Right, so joining us now, it's uh, Stephen Houston, or as he's now known, apparently, uh, Fat Russell Crowe's son. Yeah, cheers, cheers, mate. According to Jamie Carragher, this was uh, this was on Sky Sports this weekend. You were on a debate with Jamie Carragher, and he uh, lashed out, should we say. I think he was just upset that um, that he scored a lot of own goals. For, I was trying to work out, actually. I was chatting to one of the Liverpool lads before when I was in <laughs> Liverpool, and I was saying, how many own goals has he scored like against United? Because it's a few, isn't it? And he was like, yeah, it's like five or six, I think he scored. And then uh, I said, how many times did he actually score for Liverpool? Because I bet it's close. I bet it's close. It'd be interesting to see whether he's actually scored more goals for United than he did for Liverpool and played his entire career at Liverpool. But can I just say as well? You wound him up, basically. Yeah, I wound him up. But do you know who wound it up more was Gary Neville? Because I'm sitting there before we start and Gary Neville's like, oh, you can't say that. I haven't said anything. I'm like, I'm literally sat there, and I'm like, oh, he's just, he's just winding Carragher up. Like, oh, so as soon as, as soon as he got the opportunity, Carragher was like, bam, have that. Um, even though it was probably unwarranted. But there's been a lot of like proper wet knobheads, for want of a better word. People getting all hot and flustered and mired about it. Like, honestly, do you think I care what Jamie Carragher says? It was. Do you think like? I, I'm on YouTube. Do you not think I've seen a comment section of YouTube? Do you think that's harsh? Or do you think that gets to me? Jesus Christ, mate, I'd have finished YouTube about three years ago if that sort of stuff got to hey, me. If you look like Russell Crowe, there's worse things than, uh, than looking like Russell Crowe. So uh, you can be content with that at least. It was an interesting precursor, an interesting preview to the game itself, though, Stephen, which uh, drew some mixed reaction, I think it's fair to say, for Manchester United fans um, after the game. Um, talk to us, what did you make of... Jose Mourinho's approach it garnered a lot of criticism. Yeah, and I think it's pretty unfair to be honest. Uh, I had a quick look at look back. We've won a few times under like uh, Van Gaal and that um, at Anfield, um, or you know, a couple of times. At, I think it's a couple of times uh, with Van Gaal, and I think that skews our recent history there. Uh, Fergie won in the 2012-13 season uh, with a Van Persie penalty, and he's. His only other win, or his, his closest win to that one, was all the way back in 2008. So it's not like... Because I, I saw a lot of the criticisms like, oh, Fergie would never go to Anfield and do this. Well, no, do you know what? Fergie did do this. And I remember the time when John O'Shea got the winner as well, when uh, we was absolutely garbage and we somehow managed to pull out a last-minute winner. Now, United, I thought, didn't set up negatively. I thought we set up to be conservative, absolutely, but not completely to negate playing football. And Jose Mourinho's substitutions were attacking substitutions on what planet is bringing Rashford and Lingard on? Like a a negative mindset. 
And I thought his press conference was really interesting as well because in his press conference he said he was waiting for Klopp to make that attacking change. Uh, and if, you, if you've watched United all season, the four nils that we've got, a hell of a lot of those four nils have, have ended up you know, going from a one nil that's quite tight and then as soon as the opposition have switched their formation, we've took massive advantage of it and then gone running away with the game. And I could see elements of that in what he was saying. Um, I think that our plan was probably to try and execute a 1-0 snatch and grab. And that is no problem with me whatsoever they, at Anfield. We just didn't did. do it. We you, were you shit, mate. That was the problem. <laughs> I was going to say, you almost did the Romelu Lukaku had a fantastic chance in the he first did. half. He's, that he's was got the one a, opportunity you made. He has got to put those away. Do you, not, well, uh, do you not think Manchester United should have done more to test? I know you're talking about the substitutions there later on in the game, but from the outset, the overall approach, we know Liverpool is struggling at the back. We know there's a weakness there. Surely Manchester United should have done more to test them and expose that. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely should have. There's no denying that whatsoever. I mean, performance-wise, I was pretty pissed off. Result-wise, I can take it. But performance-wise, yeah, I thought there was a lot of things that we could and should have done that we didn't do. The number one one for me was... It would have been in who I started, to be fair. I would have gone with Rashford and Lingard. And the job that they did on Chelsea at the end of last season would have been what I would have asked them to do against Liverpool this weekend. And that would have been to to high-press that defence because that defence is going to... It's got mistakes in it all day long. Uh, the fact that we allowed them to step out of defence without anyone going near them, that was annoying. And apart from that, I, I think we would have turned possession over in their third. And I think if you're turning possession over in their third... You're probably one for one the way that their team spread out. You've got to take your chances. You've got to, you've got to expect you're going to get chances there. And we didn't do that. So that I'm not happy with. But I also think you've got to say, in slight mitigation before it, we lost Bayer just before kickoff. We lost Rashford just before kickoff. If he's worked on a certain plan and a certain system and a certain style, and that all has to change right before kickoff, which is, sounds like more or less that's what happened. The fact that Ashley Young's playing up front on the right wing for the first time in Christ knows how long, I think shows you what was was a bit of a patch-up sort of job for United. Mm. I think if we'd have had Paul Pogba in the team, it's a little bit different. With hindsight, I said at the start, I, I wouldn't have played Matt. I thought this was a game where we needed a bit more grit and a bit more direct play. Not, that's not Matt's game, but we were so sloppy on the ball that actually maybe one Matt would have been a good option for us. But, you know, I think the, the overreaction to this is, is absolutely ridiculous. The fact that Chelsea got spanked by Crystal Palace, who couldn't even score a goal prior to this weekend, and Arsenal lose to Watford, and all everybody wants to talk about is how United get a, a credible <laughs> oh, point away listen, at Anfield. Listen, we, we've talked plenty about Chelsea and Arsenal on this podcast, don't you worry, but I think the context is important, though, because I think for many people this is shaping up now that it's between the two Manchester clubs for the title. It's Manchester City and Manchester United. It's two-horse race in many ways. Of course, a point is decent at Liverpool, but do you not think with City playing the way they are, scoring goals for fun, seemingly already having one hand on the trophy, in these sort of games, this is where Manchester United need to do more. They need to go for those three points because they're going to need them if they're going to keep pace with their rivals. Bolt. Bolt. No one's winning the of league course. in October, mate. How many times have you seen Arsenal crown themselves? It's just the way it's shaping up right back now. Back in October. Nothing gets won in October. Right, OK. You can't say one hand on a trophy. That's hey. utterly ridiculous. What you can say is, I would freely admit this City team is spanking teams, scoring goals for fun. And it must be brilliant for the 75% crowd that turns up to be able to <laughs> see that sort of stuff. But you've got to say, this is what City have done for the previous two years. And they've won jack shit. This mm. feels different. This feels a bit more direct than last year's City team. Last year's City team was getting all the same sort of plaudits, but actually didn't really deserve it because it was holding possession mostly between the two centre-halves and a goalkeeper. This team, I do think, is a little bit different. This team does look a bit more like the real deal, worryingly. Um, there's still a little bit of frailties in there. Uh, it'd be interesting to see where they go about Christmas, and obviously that Manchester derby is going to be big. enormous. But you can't start comparing results. Why, why is everyone comparing the result that we had with Liverpool? We get a draw, they spank them after going down to 10 men. Why is I'd, no one comparing the result that we got with Everton and our results? Listen, and their results uh, Manchester, Manchester City, I should say, have obviously got big games, big opponents coming up, perhaps um, opportunities to drop points. But Manchester United just feels like you know they've got Spurs coming up, they've got Chelsea coming up. I, I, I would that, I would like him to be a little bit braver in games like this, but this is the criticism that everyone quite rightly has for Arsene Wenger that he doesn't adapt mm. to his opponents. He just turns up and decides he's going to play a certain way. 
this is the criticism that people have got of Pep Guardiola. This is the criticism that Klopp gets himself that he's got one way of playing and he doesn't, he's not able to adapt it. So, how's Mourinho criticised for what obviously works and wins championships and these other guys that aren't winning jack shit aren't being criticised because they're not changing their own style. <laughs> Look, Let's... if it's, it's prettier, it's not pretty. It's effective. And I think, actually, some of the goals and some of the, the numbers that United have put up this season, we've played some brilliant football this season. Saturday wasn't one of those games. No one's pretending it is. But the, the criticism, again, is imbalanced, obviously. Let's talk a little bit to finish about Mourinho then in terms of his future because there's stories coming out today about uh, potential contract renewals. Uh, Mourinho apparently demanding a big pay rise if he is to renew his current three-year deal, which of course he's now almost halfway through, having joined the club in 2016. Uh, talk that you know he himself said in a press conference that he's not going to finish his career at Manchester United. He's sure of that. He's a coach who wants to do new things. I mean, this perhaps isn't surprising to Manchester United fans. Mourinho, from the outset, was seen as a short-term appointment. But what do you make of these quotes and what do you make of this news that you know Mourinho might be renewing his contract to Manchester United? By all accounts, the word on the street is that there's not going to be a problem with him renewing. But I don't think that, that matters. The contracts in football nowadays are a waste of time anyway, aren't they? Um, there's always been the doubt. Nobody, I don't think, with a... a a living brain cell in the red thought that Jose Mourinho was going to walk off like Alex Ferguson did into the sunset at 70 after winning everything. Not a single person in the world thought that. I think I said when he was appointed, might as well start drawing that shortlist up now because he's going to be gone at some point in the next few seasons. The biggest appointment I think United could make right now would be a director of football. Someone that's going to understand whatever this direction the club's going to take in because I don't trust Edward Wood to do that. Uh, and and find someone that's that we can be interviewing now rather than hitting the panic button when it goes tits up with Mourinho in like six months, 18 months, 24 months, whenever it is. Whenever that, that button gets pressed where Mourinho bounces and he's off, we need to have a list that's been well curated, well researched, well interviewed and we know exactly what we're likely to be getting and I would love a director of football that's going to sit over the manager and have that longer term vision sort of lined up because again if we go back to City whether you agree with the how the, the manner and the way that they got rid of the likes of Pellegrini and Mancini they knew at some point they was bringing Guardiola in now I don't think you could ever say United yeah in five years we're going to be bringing this particular guy in but they were setting up things in the background that would make it, uh, Guardiola's life easier and they they had a plan at least now you might not agree with the plan you might think the plan's bollocks but having a plan is better than having no plan, isn't it? And it feels like United, even when we got Mourinho, that felt like that was an opportunity rather than a plan. It felt like because he was been from... If he'd have won the league again at Chelsea, he wouldn't have come at United, would he? So it feels like that was opportunistic rather than uh, proper preparation from Manchester United. And for a club of our size, and let's just face it, the money is a massive factor in everything that United do. For a club that's worth our, our size and how dependent we are on being successful for the bottom line of the club and to stay to keep that glazer debt away from us, we are run like an absolute shit show. I think it's only the fact that we've managed to be relatively successful in recent years, and I say literally relatively successful, it stops us becoming the, the absolute laughing stock that, that West Ham and that find themselves in at the moment because I don't get the impression that anyone has a fucking clue what they're doing in this club. <laughs> That seems like the perfect note to end it on there. Uh, Stephen Nelson, thanks so much for joining us. Where can people find more of you? Plug your stuff. Uh, Stephen Nelson FC on uh, YouTube is the place that I'm trying to grow the most. I've got a warm-down podcast, which is just purely football, because my other podcast wanders off into the weird. But check out the warm-down podcast. And trust me, I think Boltwood, I told last week what I'm up to, but I'm not revealing it properly mm. on air. But there is going to be some unbelievable guests on there in the next few weeks or so uh, and I'm off to Mar I'm off to Marseille on Thursday to go and check out a Europa League game there while they're oh. playing against uh, Vittoria Setable so nice. yeah, if, you, if you like football travel and all that lot my YouTube channel is all about that and I've got a really banging Bilbao video coming probably this week too Massive thanks to Stephen there for coming on the podcast once again interesting stuff um, I mean, Dave seemed happy with the point on Twitter, celebrated it uh, pretty wildly, I think it's fair Absolutely to say. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I, I thought as much. I pointed out myself. Uh, I, 
as Housen says there, at the point that everyone's sort of bringing up is that potentially Manchester United fans can expect more from the performance. We're not arguing that a point away at Anfield is a decent result. But the fact is, from where I was sitting, at least, Lawrence, uh, Liverpool impressed. They, they, they tried to win the game, but for a stunning David De Gea save, they probably would have. Some would argue, though, that perhaps even they didn't do enough. Mourinho himself suggesting Liverpool's approach was cautious in its own way. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, well, I mean, you're obviously, it's about balancing risk. I, I definitely, it would have been unusual, um, it would have been unusual for Liverpool to just go all out attack and leave themselves open to exactly what Mourinho wanted, which was the United counter-attack. And I think Liverpool were obviously conscious of that. They, I think what Liverpool uh, maybe thought they would come up against was a more attacking Manchester United. I think, again, it sort of comes down to something I said, I think earlier on another show, is we ex- for, for what they've spent and what they've assembled, I think Manchester United should be doing more going forward because of the, the riches that they have at their disposal but again it's not you know I think um, the true Jordi made a point where he said you know these fans are going to feel cheated because you know they pay to come and see their club play well but if they win the title at the end of the season then that's going to feel like one of those instances where they you know played particularly uh, defensively but it won them the title because it was grit and it was determination mm. you cannot it, it, Mourinho is fantastic it's been the ultimate uh, side is Liverpool looked like the better team, but United allowed them to be. So it feels quite empty, I think, for Liverpool fans because they didn't come away with the result. Mm. I mean, what did you make of uh, Liverpool's performance, Nico? I completely agree with Lawrence. I think that they would have imagined that, you know, they have to be careful because Mourinho is very good at manipulating game state and making teams play how he wants them to play so that he can, you know, lull them sort of into a false sense of security and then expose that. But it was, I don't know, I, I think it was kind of, it's almost embarrassing how defensive they were because it's not like Liverpool don't have their issues. And I mean, for all the criticisms of their defensive setup, there are glaring issues sort of in the midfield department that Manchester United, had they been a little bit more adventurous in their offensive actions, they could have easily exposed, whether it be on the counterattack or in possession. And I just think, Sitting and being so, I don't know, complacent and not taking a risk in a game like that is, I think Mourinho would have, was hoping that it might have paid off for him in a different manner because Klopp might have done a little something different, but he was very intelligent in the way that he managed the game. And I think Liverpool fans can feel really hard done by not uh, coming away with uh, with three points because they created a lot of high quality chances against a really solid uh, Manchester United defensive unit, and there was you know according to the expected goals they they probably should have scored once if not more than once. So I I, I feel really disappointed for for Klopp because I think it's points that he probably deserved. But this this is sort of reaffirming what he's been talking about in press conferences recently, which is you know the underlying despite the results, the underlying performances in his mind and really with the numbers have been there. And so if they can continue to sort of ride out the storm and play well and have these good performances, then there's really not that much to worry about. And I think this this was a game where Liverpool deserved to win. And mm. I, 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 although, you know, like like a lot of people are saying, a point at Anfield, going away to Anfield, isn't by no means a bad result. But I think for Manchester United, for their title aspirations, for everything they want to do, they should be attacking Liverpool more. Mm. Certainly, hard to disagree with that. I mean, we're talking about Chelsea, Lawrence, talking about Arsenal potentially being out of the title race, both on 13 points after eight games as the as the table takes shape. Uh, do you think Liverpool are still in with a shout being on 13 points themselves? Do you think they're still in that uh, conversation? Or is it simply, as we're sort of seeming to, to see, it's the Manchester clubs to lose? Yeah, I, mean, I think the reason that Liverpool probably aren't in that conversation is because the Manchester clubs have set that precedent of being more dominant. And Liverpool aren't currently playing that kind of football which looks dominant or comes across in a the um, the, the press, at least, as a dominant kind of football. Um, and for that reason, I, I think Liverpool aren't being discussed. But in future, I mean, we'll see. Maybe Naby Keita will join in January and, you know, Coutinho and him will pair up nicely and there'll be a, a lovely... Uh, a lovely few moments between them. But I also think Liverpool fans this season realise there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of unsure there are a lot of unsure elements at the club and one of those short, huge uh, unsure elements is that they don't know if Coutinho is going to be there in the future so um, when the when the attack looked stilted the other day um, it was because Liverpool looked very static um, and I think part of that is they're not a very confident side right now and if you have a side that's based so much on confidence then you have a real issue because you need to be able to grind out wins um, and they just didn't do that Right, part three, let's talk Serie A then, a very tasty weekend Woo! indeed. Not only did we have the Milan derby, uh, which saw into Captain Mara Akadi, the hero, scoring a last-minute penalty to complete his hat-trick um, to seal a 3-2 win over Milan. Not only that, um, Inter now second in Serie A with 22 points from eight games. They're two behind Napoli though, Nico. We mentioned earlier, they've got that 100% record now. They won 1-0 against Roma. Yeah, I think this is one of those results that maybe you can juxtapose to their team last year that they might not have come away with. I think given the way that they engage defenses and and the, all of the things that they're able to do in possession with their players, their attack never really dulls, and that's never really been the issue. But I think it's the sort of the manipulation of game state that maybe other managers like Mourinho are very good at doing that Saudi has lacked, and you can't fault him for it. He's only been a, a professional manager for uh, for 10 years now. He's a banker previous to that. Um and so, but he's improved on, on that. And I think that that really shows because it wasn't the prettiest game. Uh, there was a lot of cool tactical things to observe in this game, um, but it wasn't the prettiest game. It was a 1-0 off sort of a, a deflected ball going to directly to Lorenzo Insigne and him finishing him finishing well. But, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a game that, you know, at the end of the year, if they win the title, you'll say, oh, you know, well, that's where they won the title. Um, and you know, you continue to be impressed by, by Napoli, not only the things that they do on the ball, uh, offensively, but also defensively, the compactness that they have and the ability to, to shut down and repel the attacks of a talented attacking side, like, like Roma. So it's another win for Napoli and it hopefully another step towards a, a title that I think they, they well deserve at this point. Mm, interesting. A title they could be taking from Juventus, Nico, who lost at home for the first time in over two years, 41 games. This was that. a great game. Yeah, I mean, dramatic, I think it's fair to say, this uh, defeat to Lazio. Yeah, I can't understand, given the events uh, of this game, why we don't have VAR in uh, in the Premier League. Because the Bundesliga has it, and yeah. this game was decided, or almost, well, I guess in some sense it was. It was decided by uh, the video referee. Um, but, you know, this is, for me analyzing and watching Allegri last season a lot was was really nice. Um, but I think he, as much as probably Bonucci is missing him at Milan and the way that he was able to use him, uh, Allegri is missing Bonucci because I think, and even Pep Guardiola has spoken to this, you know, the culture and the nuances of each league change uh, from league to league. And I think Serie A is more of a defensive entity. And that's all partially why uh, Napoli is so special because they're such an attacking entity. But I think what made Juventus so successful for the past couple of seasons is obviously that core Bonucci, Barzagli, Chiellini, uh, Buffon, you know, those guys, they, they held the, 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 that Juventus team so well together and they, they were able to mitigate and, and control so many teams from an attacker for, I guess, from a defensive perspective, um, that it was really difficult, even at 1-0 or 2-0, to like imagine scoring against Juventus because they were so defensively solid. And I think as Allegri sort of transitions to this new era at Juventus, which I think he will do successfully, it's just going to take some time, they really miss Bonucci because not only because of, of his defensive work and, and the partnership that those three players were able to to solidify but also as an offensive entity they were able to control games and and pick teams apart without really having too much risk and putting it in midfield and doing all these things that are associated with with risky play um through the the passing ability of Benucci so it's a transitory period for Juventus Lazio were excellent uh, yeah, I think it was a uh, Filippo Inzaghi's brother or that's or actually that's his name um that is managing this Lazio team, and, and they do so in, in, in sort of similar to Napoli, not near as good, but um, sort of similar to Napoli as, as, as a very ot attacking side and a very offensive entity in Serie A. So that's sort of refreshing, and Sirio Immobile was fantastic during this game. Um, but obviously, 
the the moment that that was really fantastic towards the end was that Dybala got the ball at the edge of the box and sort of on a half volley hit the ball perfectly. You imagined it going into the into the net and then it just hit off the post. And then a few seconds later, Juventus get a penalty from a very stupid challenge from the Lazio player. And then Dybala, two out of two misses a. Uh, Two games in a row, actually, misses his penalty and, and sort of loses the game for, for Juventus. So it's an interesting period uh, for Juventus, but I think they'll get through it. It's just a, a, a bit of a difficult time. Mm. Very dramatic finale. Very exciting. I think, as you say, it demonstrates why we should have VAR in the Premier League. I'm sure it won't be too long before it is introduced. Um, finally, Lawrence, uh, another interesting incident from around Europe this weekend. Hertha Berlin taking the knee this weekend before their home defeat to Schalke in solidarity with American athletes, of course, uh, taking the same protest. Um, a protest that's, of course, caused a lot of controversy in America, a lot of debate over um, the, the method of protest and, and how it's being conducted. Um, Hertha Berlin, though, tweeting out after the game that the club stands for tolerance and responsibility for a tolerant Berlin and an open-minded world now and forevermore. That was the meaning behind the gesture, behind them taking the knee. Um, seeming to, much like the American protest itself, draw a mixed reaction from many. What's your take on Germany and take a knee coming to Europe? It's certainly interesting one, isn't it? Because... Um it seems like such a politicized act because a lot of people have chosen to politicize it to ostracize the people who decided to take a knee. Um, it seems like politics is welcome in football when it serves certain people. Doesn't seem like it's welcome when it serves the other side. I think both sides, both left and right, are probably guilty of that. However, there does seem to be one more tolerant side um, towards people voicing uh, their opinions uh, than another. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, for what it stands for it seems to stand for being um, for equality within the game uh, and you know maybe raising some issues which aren't as prominent um, as um, as a lot of athletes would like them to be considering how they've grown up themselves and maybe how they see the world for young black people um, and also uh, other people who find themselves in a minority or a perceived minority or a minority where they don't have the voice that maybe they should. And I think that's maybe that's part of the problem is the linguistics of everything that we're dealing with at the moment. A lot of people seem to pick on small details and then apply that to an entire argument rather than um, uh, deciding to approach the whole issue. I think that's what makes it difficult. What also seems to make it difficult, and I think has made it difficult not only in football, but also in music, is that some people find themselves disagreeing with the athletes that um, are on their team. And so, uh, but the, the big problem seems to be, and those people say, well, I'll boycott the team or boycott um, what's going on with that team, rather than approaching their own issues. Um, and then that, that comes into direct conflict with... Um, the kind of the product side of it, because, you know, you can't sell a product to people if, if they directly disagree with the um, ethics of the company. Mm. Um, and what's unusual is it seems like they'd rather the athletes just hid how they felt rather than telling everyone how they feel, yeah. <laughs> which is unusual. And it also, see, I mean, so my argument against that would be you're more than happy to buy clothes which are made in uh, countries where people suffer to make them and ignore that. And, you know, those people are employees of companies that you seem to support rather than the other way around. Mm. Um, so it, it sort of it, it seems the big issue is it challenges people who maybe weren't aware of some of these issues rather than the other way around, where it's actually challenging directly what they politically think. This, um, this is the yeah, thing. I mean, people in a compromising position. Yeah, it's such an interesting debate and obviously such an interesting topic is obviously a very emotional topic uh, in America at the moment. Nico, I'd be interested to get your thoughts because, you know, for me, someone who's just been in America, there's been so much coverage about this NFL protest, about this incident. For me, it's obvious that, uh, you know, clearly these players are trying to, to use their, their popularity, their platform to bring awareness to these issues. Yes, it's been somewhat distorted by uh, the government in America to try and make it about a different issue. 
But here we see her for Blim for me uh, using their own platform, using their own uh, way to draw attention to these issues. And it's as simple as that, is it not? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there is that, you know, regardless of whether people disagree with taking a knee or not, it's about peaceful protests and it's about bringing attention to issues that maybe you wouldn't have thought about before. And people argue that sports should be, you know, should provide a level of escapism and that they don't want to think about politics during this, that and the other. But realistically, there are people who if you're one of the people who say, you know, I don't want to think about politics during the sport and they shouldn't be politicizing this, that and the other. That's only because your politics weren't involved previous to, to the matter. You know, there are people that because of their socioeconomic situation, because of their position in life, they can't ever have any sort of escapism. They can't escape the politics. Everything that's affecting them constantly doesn't allow them to have a sense of escapism. So drawing attention to these issues is an important part of how we solve that as a society. And I think there's been sort of a bastardization of Colin Kaepernick's original message, which is, you know, it, it's not about disrespecting the troops it has nothing to do with that you know we use the flag as a method you know in in capital and and to sell beer and to sell ultimately stupid products and it's not a disrespect of the flag there's nothing more american than standing up for what you believe in and peacefully drawing attention to that issue that that that's symbolic speech that's freedom of speech and talking about the things that you think are wrong and that you think affect you and so there's been, like I mentioned, there's been sort of a bastardization of that image by some of the owners kneeling with the players, which is fine. But realistically, you know, they're doing it so that they don't upset the players. And I think Hertha Berlin doing it is more than fine because they're trying to set a precedent that if you feel, if you feel, you know, oppressed, if you feel encroached upon, if you feel that your freedoms are being aren't aren't being protected by the very entity that is supposed to protect you as an American citizen or a citizen of a country that respects its citizens, then you should stand up for you, what you believe in and and take a stand for that because because that you know that that's as a society how we solve issues. We come together and we talk about things and we look at each other's perspective and we try to empathize. That's that's the issue. I think the the coverage this got the uh, the fact that Hertha Berlin took a knee that they they brought it to Europe as it were uh, demonstrates just how uh, effective it can be. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if other teams, uh, particularly around Europe and potentially in the UK, do follow suit. Um, but do let us know what you think on Twitter at the Front Free. Send us your thoughts. Uh, and opinions. Uh, thanks so much for listening to this weekend's Weekend Review. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it. For now, though, we're going to be back on Thursday with the Champions League review and the Q&A, as always. Lawrence, where can the good people, where can the listeners find you until then? Probably at the front three. Mm, good shout. Mm. What about you, Nico? Yeah. Didn't shout it. They can find me on Twitter at Nico underscore O'Morales. And obviously, like I mentioned, I'll be doing the piece at TheRinger.com. So check that out before the Napoli City game. Lovely stuff. Once again, thank you so much for listening, guys. We'll see you on Thursday. Until then, enjoy the Champions League action. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 